Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Kate Bornstein for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is November 4th, 2019, and this has been recorded at the NYU Department of Sociology. Hello, Kate. Hello, Michelle. Could you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Kate Bornstein. Uh, I'm an actor and an author. I don't call myself an activist. I've been labeled that, but I, I, I'm not good at that. I'm, I'm good at writing, I'm good at acting, and I like to do those things in service to activism. So it gets confused. Are you up for starting off talking about your childhood? Sure. What's sure a thing. memory uh, that you have from your childhood? Tell us a story. I was about nine or ten. My mom, who enjoyed her wine, um, was in her cups and told me, she said, you know, Albert, my name, every night I go to sleep, I try to see the moment I fall asleep. Not before, because I can always remember before, and, and I can always remember, oh my goodness, I fell asleep, but that exact moment of falling asleep, I never have experienced that. I think if I experience that, I'll know a lot more about death. She told this to a nine-year-old. And I think that's been a guiding light for me my whole life. Um, this whole idea of the point between, that tipping point between two things. My big life realization was that I'm not a man and I'm not a woman. My journey up to that point and since that point. Um, but that, that moment, um, Non-binary wasn't a word in 1989. I guess it was 89, yeah. Uh, so I'd just been calling myself not man, not woman for all that time. Um, that's, that's my favorite childhood thing. Mm -hmm. Where were you and your mom living? We were on the Jersey Shore, uh, just outside of Asbury Park, New Jersey. Um, my father, myself, my brother, my mother, the four of us, uh, it was a nuclear family. My brother was born before World War II. I was born after World War II. My father served in North Africa and France during the war. He was a medic doctor, colonel. He had his own mass unit. <coughs> um, so I was very young when my brother and I lived together. 
uh, he went away to high school. So for th from that point, high school and college, I was pretty much a single kid except in summers. So I had the experience of being the little kid in the house, the baby brother. We were both named Al. So I was little Al, he was big Al. Uh, he was Al and I was Albert. Um, there. <laughs> that, uh, I'm thinking of that, that pivot of before and after of sleep and non-binary. Did that come up multiple times in your life? That Death has always been a fascination for me. I'm turning 72 in four or five months now, and so I'm a lot closer. Also, my health is pretty fucked up. Uh, I consider that I'm living on, not borrowed time, but gifted time. <coughs> in 2012, I was diagnosed with lung cancer, and... I didn't have the kind of insurance that would cover the exact kind of chemotherapy that I needed at the time. I had surgery, but the chemotherapy wasn't available to me. So my partner, then and now, Barbara Corellis and Laura Vogel, arranged a very early crowdsourcing campaign for me, like in the first, within the first year of crowdsourcing. And in a week, people had given me $100,000. It's a hell of a gift. And burned through it. And the next two years on chemotherapy and radiation and living expenses because I couldn't tour or do anything. And I've now been five years free of that cancer. But it has left me in an unusually frail position uh, or, or situation. And so I'm aware of death. I'm aware of the definitive truth that everybody dies and nobody knows what's going to be the moment of their death. And I, my favorite app on my phone is an app called We Croak. Uh, it's based on a Bhutanese saying that in order to live your life fully, you must contemplate your death at least five times a day. So this little app randomly pops up and says, hey, remember, you're going to die, and gives you a great quote. Uh, I'm speaking happily and, and, and jocular right now, but for 
from the time that I knew I could kill myself I wanted to uh, as a teenager and I was suicidal until I'd say until 2006 when I wrote a book called Hello Cruel World and basically got it out of my system. It's not that I'm over death au contraire, I'm still fascinated with that moment. Um, it's so it's so much more important a question than what's my gender. And embracing a neither nor gender has really freed me up to embrace this neither alive nor dead concept. You mentioned you're Buddhist. Um, both are words for phases, and that's really all. And I'm just looking forward to it <laughs> still. I don't want to die. I'm scared of dying. But I really do want to be awake for it. I don't want to die in my sleep. I want to die wide awake and with a big yahoo. You spent a lot of time writing uh, and have a lot of writing out there. Uh, it, being writing a book about um, a sort of a self-help guide on teen depression um, and working through your own suicidality in the process that that's quite um, that's quite interesting what was that process like writing that book and like how it sounds like some sort of self-therapeutic process or it, it, it began with 9-11, the 9-11 attacks on New York City. Um, my partner and I live up in East Harlem, and we open our back door onto a fire escape, and it faces south. And so we're like seven miles from ground zero, and we could see the smoke rising. And on the third day, the smoke started to blow north and it blew into our apartment. Um, it was terrible. It was, you could see it sticking to things. It was greasy. It was thick. It, it was bitter and acrid. And it didn't take long before my, my partner and I realized we were inhaling people. And at that point, it was of what value is all my work on postmodern gender theory in a world gone this mad? Because nothing I'd written addressed this particular madness of humanity. Um, were you living in New York at the time? Uh, I started my move here that month. Whoa. Yeah, whoa. 
think it was the friendliest period of New York City. Everybody was everybody else's friend. And that was a big deal. Now, at the time and to this day, I, I pay the rent by going around and giving talks at colleges or performances or workshops. Um, but my heart wasn't in it at that point. It was like, oh, what the fuck? Um, so I kept touring around, gender this, gender that. I started to hear more and more instances of students having committed suicide or attempting suicide. And they were the freaky kids. It wasn't just trans, it was sometimes gay, it was sometimes religious who were wearing religious garb. Um, it was just freaky kids were killing themselves. And there was a beat poet named Thule Kupferberg. And he wrote a book, it was one of my favorite books, A Thousand and One Ways to Live Without Working. And it, he ran it off on a Mimeo machine. And it was eight and a half by 11, folded vertically, I guess. It was, it was a big, tall, skinny book, and he stapled it. And it was things like find a $50 bill in a toilet, and you're the only one brave enough to fish it out. Find a $20 bill in the toilet, and you're the only one brave enough. Find a $10 bill. It's just like ridiculous, ridiculous ways to live without working. And I thought, yeah, I should write 101 ways to not kill yourself. And then I thought, all right, all right, all right, all right. What is it about suicide prevention? And I started researching suicide prevention. And what I found is that the similar thread through everything I read that's don't kill yourself was the message, be good. And then a very moralistic outline of what being good entailed. This is how you be good. And nothing that I read would have ever stopped me from killing myself. And that set me on, okay, what did stop me from killing myself? Because I remember laying it all out at least six times. Uh, those are the times I remember laying it all out. But at I stopped every time because I thought of something better to do. It wasn't that I didn't want to kill myself. I thought something better to do than that. And I thought, all right, all right, all right. I can write alternatives to suicide. Let's, let me phrase it that way. 101 alternatives to suicide. And then it became a question of, all right, uh, Do what kind of moralistic rules really have to contain these 101 ways? And I thought, there can't really be any. 
what if the one thing I say don't do is the one thing some reader is going to, that, that's what they're going to need to do in order to stay alive. And so there's only one rule in the book, and the rule is don't be mean. And the deal is you do whatever it takes to make your life more worth living. Just don't be mean. And writing the book, I remember every time I write a book, I've got different kinds of music. It was reggae. So I was stunned a lot of the time when I wrote the first draft. And um, listening to this reggae and remembering all the things that I did to stay alive. Um, some of them were dangerous as all fuck. I was anorexic for most of my life. And that's in the book. That's an alternative. Yeah, if you got to starve yourself in order to stay alive, do. Stop that as soon as you can because you give yourself heart trouble and you will die. Um, and as I was working all this out, it was working out inside of me. And I realized that even though my life isn't worth living all the time, I can make it more worth living. I can always make it more worth living. And moving in that direction really is all I need to do. And that was the big woohoo for me in writing that book. I came out in 2006. It took, took a while to write that. What did you find as a teenager that was better to do than to kill yourself? I would eat. I was, I was a, a tubby teenager. Uh, I got up to like 240 pounds at one point. And no, that's a lie. But like 220, 230, in and around there. And in high school, I went away to school. I went out for wrestling. And I was big. I figured, what the fuck? I, I can conquer anybody. And I got pinned in the first, like, 15 seconds of my first match and realized I had to go down. I had to lose weight. And so I stopped eating. That encouraged me. That literally gave me courage then and self-esteem. And because of my trans stuff, uh, the more weight I lost, the more I saw myself as feminine. And that was a heady time. When I got down to, I wrestled in one, at 177. Got pinned in the first 15 seconds because I was so wiped out from not eating. But it, that didn't matter anymore. That that was my big teenage difference. And 
what was the Jersey Shore like in the what is this in the sixties now? Early and mid sixties when you were growing up there? As a child it was the fifties. Everything was normal. Men were men, boys were boys, girls were girls. Girls didn't wear jeans or pants of any kind, and middle-class boys didn't wear jeans. They were called dungarees. That was for bad kids. Um, Clothing was very much a badge of not only gender, but class. Um, <laughs> bought my clothes in the Husky department for boys. I don't know about you, but from the moment I realized that a boy wasn't right for me, um, there hasn't been a day in my life, and that's four, there hasn't been a day in my life that I haven't thought about gender, period. Um, and I have been analyzing gender to the best of my ability ever since I was four, four and a half years old. Nothing in the culture encouraged me to do that. And it wasn't until I was 13, 12, that I ran across Christine Jorgensen in the National Enquirer in a store window. She was a he, and it was like my whole world exploded. Uh, oh my God, that's possible? Really? Is that what I am? And up until that point, I'd kind of been Oh, well, and just doing what was outlined for me. My father was a doctor. That's where I was headed. I was going to be a doctor like my father. Yes, I was going to be bar mitzvah. All right. Uh, nothing held any delight for me. But thoughts of, I could be a girl? That was like my first understanding of delight. Still is, <laughs> you know. It's 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 such a terrific thing to do to go against that particular tradition of nope. This is what you were at birth. This is what you've got to be. I live with borderline personality disorder, and. Part of that is 
really no control over emotions. Once an emotion kind of sets in, it doesn't go away. Dialectic behavioral therapy helped me with that. Um, but another symptom, if you will, or factor of living with borderline is black and white thinking. And from the moment I realized in like 1988 that I wasn't a man and I wasn't a woman, I broke myself of a huge fucking binary in my life. And okay, rambling, rambling, rambling. In the North Bay, there's a Buddhist master named Cherie Huber. She's an author, and I've never met her, but I've read some of her books. And she has a marvelous koan she came up with. The way you do anything is the way you do everything. I've been puzzling on that one since I found it in 1989, 1990. Uh, it's, it's a delightful key that unlocks pretty much everything for me. And breaking the binary of gender has led me to breaking pretty much every other binary in my life, or at least as soon as I realize it's a binary, I'm able to break it. And so I was able to address that part of my borderline life without therapy. And I'm, that was cool. I don't know where I was going, but there, okay, run out. Uh, what happened when you got out of high school? Went right to college. Um, and sure, I went into, I was accepted into a, an accelerated pre-med medical school, six years special program, and when like my f during freshman week, when you find out what your course load is going to be. And I saw all the math and physics and calculus and statistics. I said no. And I dropped out of the program. And my father was furious. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I got mononucleosis at the end of my freshman week, at the end of freshman week. And I was in the infirmary for 10 days or so. By the time I came out, every kind of extracurricular activity that I was interested in had already begun. I thought, well, I'll go out for crew, I'll, I don't know, I'll do this, I'll do that. And pretty much the only one that wasn't, I saw there was auditions for Richard III um, for the campus drama group. And I, I, I'll do that. And I was cast as a chorus member. You know, 
the Duke of Norfolk, I had one line, my lord, the Duke arrives, or something like that. And that was it, acting, acting was another delight. Acting was a, a delight on par with the idea of I could be girl. And made sense in retrospect. Because the fact is, up till that point, I'd been living a lie. I'm a boy, I'm a man. None of that worked. And I'd been acting as a boy and as a man, and so I was good at it. And I spent the next four years in college pretty much acting, directing, scene design, stage. And summers I would, you know, do summer theater. I'd be a stagehand at summer theater. Uh, and doing a lot of marijuana, just a whole lot of that. And this was like in the 60s. I graduated in 69. And so hippie stuff came. And, and clothing. All of a sudden, I could wear pretty clothes. All of a sudden, I could grow my hair long. Um, this made it bearable to be male. I liked sex. I really enjoyed sex, and that included sex with my penis. I was. I don't mean to intrude, but I'm assuming you at one point had a penis in your life, or maybe still do. But penises are fun, am I right? They, they, they are. They feel good. Um, for me, they felt really good. I didn't like what the penis made me, and I didn't like looking at it but I liked fucking with it. That was great. Um, mostly with women, but at nights I would hitchhike, going nowhere in particular just to get picked up by guys, and we'd have sex and I could see myself as a woman with a man. And that was wonderful. But I think I was only with one guy romantically, and that was in graduate school. We were together for four or five months. But theater, acting, and managing a life, a non-binary or trans life, uses the same talents of, okay, I'm going to study this. I'm, this is how 
these kind of people live or this particular person lives and now I'm going to take that on and live like that on stage but in trans it was okay how do women do that how do girls do that and study 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 and again no there was no internet of course so it was all magazines and television and personal observation so most of my input on what was a woman what was a girl came from advertising, marketing, commercials. Um, and it wasn't until I tried that stuff out that I found out how demeaning it was. <laughs> but that was my longing. And... I got fast forward after I finally went through with uh, it's called sex change surgery in those days uh, I moved to San Francisco one of the first jobs I got was doing marketing for a magazine called On Our Backs and there were these really great sex-positive women. Um, and it was a lot more fun than anything I'd ever read about how to be a woman, how to be a girl. Because... Um, Really, there were no rules. Just, again, it was living toward a delight. It was living toward what made you happy. And I started to understand femme at that point as, as an identity, and I hadn't prior. I was high feminine those days, you know, lots of skirts. I didn't do heels. I could never, ever get heels down. But pretty much everything else. Nowadays, I call myself a diesel femme. Um, and you spent some time in the Church of Scientology? <laughs> After my first year of graduate school, I was studying acting at Brandeis. I came summer and I knew I could act. That I'd been five years acting and training as an actor and I could make people laugh, I could make people cry. And this was the 60s and everything was like social awareness was just 
coming up to, to kids my age, and to what end? What, what, all right, you can act, what are you gonna do with that? And I set out across the cross country in a VW camper with miso and beans and seaweed and um, looking for the answer to the world's problem. Who had it? Who had the answers? And I stopped. I spent a week with helping an Amish family build a barn. Um, I stayed with the Baha'i, uh, a couple of other little communes and finally ended up in Denver, Colorado at a little Scientology center. I said, okay, what's your thing? Their thing was, you're not your body and you're not your mind. You are an immortal spiritual being called a Thetan from the Greek letter theta, meaning pure thought. And the burning question, and I asked it, I said, are there male thetans and female thetans? No, silly, they said, that's for bodies. Sold, and I joined them, I joined up with them, I stayed at that little center for about six months, and then joined their sea organization, S-E-A, for ships. And within six months, I was on Scientology's flagship. They had like three ships, and one of them was flag where the Commodore was, Commodore L. Ron Hubbard. And I was on the deck force of that ship um, for a couple of years doing various jobs. And at one point, I was first mate which was ridiculous because I didn't know anything about ships or seamanship. But their idea was, you've lived a gabillion lifetimes. Remember it. Make it go right. Uh, okay. Um, when I worked with Hubbard for a couple of years, got married under... less than good circumstances. And then my wife was pregnant and we left the ship because you couldn't have a baby on the ship. And we moved here to New York in 1972, 73, 74, in and Aha! The end of 1972, we, uh, we set up a Scientology unit here in New York at the Martinique Hotel in Herald Square. And it was a welfare hotel in those days. It had already lost all of its glory. Um, Scientology had the first two floors and there was a 
an asylum for the criminally insane, like on the 10th floor or something like that. And otherwise it was welfare folks. Um, but from that hotel, I managed all of Eastern United States and Canada for Scientology. That was, uh, that was middle management. I went from that to being a salesman, and that's when I found out that Hubbard was scamming all the money into his personal accounts, and that's when I left. Was there a practice uh, that sustained you in the church? They have a counseling practice in Scientology. And some of it was good, but most of it didn't work for me. And I just thought it was because I'm such a sick puppy. And most of it was trying to not be trans. It was basic, trying to cure myself of that. And it never cured. So. The hard part about leaving was that my whole life for close to 12 years was in that bubble. I, I left and I was uh, 32 years old, it was my Jesus year, and the only people I really knew were in the Scientology bubble. I didn't know anything about how to go get a job. Um, and in the Sea Org, we wore naval uniforms. I didn't know anything about buying clothes, buying groceries, uh, rent, uh, what was minimum wage. I didn't know any of that stuff. And I got into acting <laughs> right away. And that got me into cocaine and marijuana. And two years later, that got me, and alcohol, and that got me into Alcoholics Anonymous. And that got me sober. And that was like 1982, 83, 82, when I got sober. And I haven't had any alcohol since. Um, I still enjoy marijuana. I can I can deal with the marijuana, but alcohol, mm, 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 nope. Um, I have a daughter from Scientology. She's not allowed to talk with me. She's now forty. that. She lives in LA. She has two children. I think one of them has children. But I don't know at all. She's still involved in the community. Oh, oh yeah. She was born into it. Um, that was a burning, burning 
regret. And it is to this day a regret, but not so bad. I, I wrote um, a memoir called A Queer and Pleasant Danger for her, if she ever got out of that cult and wanted to find out what happened to her dad, she can. It was, a, it's a, I wouldn't say a brutally honest, but it was completely like honest, with a few lies, a few, Mark Twain would say a few stretchers uh, to make it interesting and funny. But she could see what, what, what my life was like. The book stops right before, right as I was moving to New York from Seattle and that was 1996 or 7. So that's like, yeah, 22 years now that I've been back in New York. And I think about writing another bit, but the, the memoir, no, I'm not going to write another memoir. I do have another book I'm working on, but I'm not, it's not a memoir. Do you want to tell us anything about it? <laughs> It's called Gender Just for the Fun of It. Um, Compassionate Gender Strategies for Divisive Times. In the same way that it became horribly apparent to me that more and more people were killing themselves. And so I wrote Hello Cruel World. It's become horribly apparent to me that People are screamingly angry with each other for no other reason than a disagreement on what is gender. I know the truth of gender. You don't. I'm a real trans person. You're not. Uh, you're not trans enough. Um, and it extends beyond trans into LGBTQIA, all of that. Everybody's got their own definitions. And in the early days of touring, it was terrific. I'd go to like small towns in Ohio, in the Midwest, and there would be small groups of self-identified queer people. They were lesbian, they were gay, they were bi, they were trans. They were all together. There were so few of them, they were all together. Now, there's so many that it's safe enough to split off from each other. And even within a group, let's say, even within the T of, of, of trans, there are people fighting each other. Um, trans women and drag queens, for example, are at each other's throats. cross-dressers, nobody validates their experience. And it came down to everybody knows the truth about gender, but nobody knows the same truth about gender. And I'm proposing that there is a definitive truth of gender There's only really one thing you can say about gender. 
that's definitive and that gender is relative to context and point of view. That's true. Um, beyond that, everything else is arguable. And we all of us claim a truth of gender that eases our heart, eases our pain, eases, makes us, gives us a little chance at some happiness. And what I haven't figured out yet is why do we insist that other people agree with us? And this leads to like, one of the first things when I went through my transition in the 80s was I am a woman. My, <laughs> right. yeah, okay, I am a woman. Uh, and don't say he, she. I have a different way of looking at gender now. What is it that really makes up gender? What are the components of gender? There's your body. That's really what we base gender on. Then there's your mind. How do we interpret the body? And then there's space-time. And with these three elements of gender, pretty much every way of looking at gender can be constructed and is constructed. But looking and in including this element of space-time and gender, my gender is a continuum. My gender is 71 years old. And in the course of my 71 years, I have insisted on every single pronoun and many that I made up. And so now, looking at gender with that point of view, I don't have the demand that other people acknowledge my gender choices. That's an incredibly peaceful point to be at. Uh, I understand because, you know, for like close to 30 years, I was insistent. It's this, it's, it's she, or then it became Z, and then it became they, and then... Now it's whatever. And trying to put this all in a book that doesn't make anybody wrong for their truth of gender is challenging. That's, that's what I'm working on now. What was one of your first exposures to trans community and trans people? America Online. Um, 
in the 80s, when the internet first started, there was a, a chat room on America. There was a service called America Online. It was, in those days, it was dial-up with modems. And there were chat rooms. You would navigate your way to a chat room, and it was called the gazebo. And you can find a collection of all the chats. Gwen Smith had basically put, put that together. You can find it. And we met there, and we talked every night about this stuff. We shared stuff about each other. Anybody was welcome. I I was into BDSM and I identified as a lesbian. And this was not in those days, this was not where most trans women headed. Or if they did, they didn't talk about it. Um, so most trans women didn't want to spend time with me. Um, to the point where when I wrote Gender Outlaw, the first edition, I was pretty snide about people who made a choice to be a man or a woman and transitioned into being a man or a woman. And wasn't wasn't anything you could point at, but it was it was a thread through that first edition that what we now call non-binary was better than binary. And in the second edition I've had the opportunity to correct that. Uh, To the point where that, where I really had a chance to sit down and talk with trans women about their decision to be trans women wasn't until about four years ago when I climbed on a bus with Caitlyn Jenner and six other trans women and we hit the road for two months for her show, I Am Kate. And I was the non-binary one, and I finally got it, that yeah, of course you're women, duh, and that's great, and it works for you, yay, oh, why, why couldn't I have just realized that, why, because I didn't have, I hadn't spent the time listening. The gazebo? Yeah. You can Google it, I'm sure. Yeah. How long were you uh, active on America Online in a couple of years? Community there, yeah. Um, you're going to ask me questions now relating to time, and my memory is going. <laughs> so right. I don't remember, but it was years. Uh, what were there things about the 
people's genders or their identities or the community in in that space that would be surprising to people now? By and large, it was all what we would call male to female. Uh, and by and large, it was older. Um, today, most what we hear about transitioning people, um, they're younger, they're in their teens, they're younger than that. Um, but in the 80s and 90s, the average transitioning trans woman was 50, maybe 40, sometimes 60 or 70. Um, there were a whole lot of closeted cross-dressers. Why do you think that was? Why did people transition later in life? We were very, very alone. There was no literature. There was no representation in films or books or TV, any, anything. There was no representation of the possibility, um, except as a freak, except as uh, someone who's severely mentally deranged. The movies about trans people were Silence of the Lambs. You were a psychotic killer, um, dressed to kill. The crying game. Um, you, you, you were deceitful. This is how we were represented. With the internet came conversation. Oh, really? I'm not the only one. And all of us have that moment of, oh my God, I'm not the only one. But now it comes a lot earlier for people. Um, now there's a word on everybody's lips. Everybody knows what trans is. I have a friend who's a major Trump supporter. Um, she was first in the Tea Party. Now she's a, a rabid Trump supporter. And I, we, we knew each other 45 years ago in Scientology. Uh, and we've agreed just not to talk about politics. And I'm learning a lot about how conservative people who believe in conservative political values view gender as opposed to sex. I think gender is a fake word. It really comes down to sex, your body. And the mind is not acknowledged as a piece of gender at all. Gender itself is, is, is a word that excuses psychotic behavior, at best neurotic behavior. So there's still a whole lot of people 
to open this world to. But I think the genie's out of the bottle. I think Pandora's box has been opened and, and trans is here to stay now as a part of the culture. Yeah, it's... There may be laws and rights that are taken away under the current Trump administration. But still, it's better than when it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. And I hope people take heart from that. When did he start writing? I didn't start writing till I was 40. And And I was writing for the Bay Area Reporter. It was one of the gay papers in San Francisco, and I was an arts critic. I could see free movies, you know, and, and I got to write about it. And they gave me, like, I think I got $10 per review. Um, and then I also was reviewing books. And I reviewed one book, I forget which one it was, for Routledge. And Marjorie Garber's book, Vested Interests. Um, and I wrote a smart review of it. And so when she came to San Francisco to do a book tour, her editor, Bill Germano, complimented me on the review and asked me if I'd ever thought about writing a book. No. no not, I don't have that much to say. And I didn't think I did. I didn't think there would be people who would listen to it. But he kept encouraging me and asked me to send him what I had. Send him a small box of, of stuff. Again, there was you, you couldn't transfer files <laughs> yet, uh, so you just sent boxes of printed out stuff. And he said, "Yeah, there's a book here," and he worked with me for the next year and a half, two years, putting it together, and guiding writing on it, um, and that became Gender Outlaw. That, that, that came out in 1994. So, uh, in what context had you done the writing that became Gender Outlaw? Like, a, it's they're not movie reviews. I wrote a play. Yeah. And there are book reviews and there are performance art reviews in oh, which wow. I situated gender theory. Uh, and again, the language was, was really crude. Uh, again, we had no word non-binary. Uh, we didn't have a word for the binary gender system. I, I called it the bipolar gender system. It was the closest I could come up with something. Um, I think I came across it in a trans studies class in 1998. You came across? Your, your work. Ah. Yeah. 
I really thought a few transsexuals and maybe a couple of academics would read the book and that would be it. Um, but it, it did catch on. And I was in the right time and the right place for that because floodgates have been opening ever since. So you mentioned the gazebo and the community of trans women on AOL. Um, were there other communities that networks that you were a part of through the 80s and 90s? Like, um, what were the circles that your books circulated in or that you, you began to speak in? I, the community I hung out in was the Dyke SM community. That was, those were my people. Um, and by extension, the FAG FSM, the FAG SM people. And as much as I was in a bubble of Scientology, I was in a bubble of BDSM from Nineteen ninety four through ninety six. Ah, uh, no, nineteen ninety 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 through ninety six. There was that. After I moved here, I I've been pretty much to myself. I think I started, I told you I'm not an activist. I think it's because I'm not that much of a social person. I, I enjoy quiet time. I really don't do well in crowds. I do well in front of crowds as an actor. That's fine. And I can give a talk. But in, in a crowd? In, no. Mm -mm. So... No, that's... Do you have a sense of what enabled the reception of your books? Like, who are the people who are reading them and who are you speaking to when you toured? Who would organize the talks? Like, what... Where did those people come from and what enabled them to... Most of the early talks that I gave were organized by women's studies um, or it wasn't called queer and wasn't even particularly LGBT gay straight alliances what it was um, because women have had to question their gender every day in the same way that I as a trans person question my gender. So do women. Women have for thousands of years been instructed in a very unnatural behavior, unnatural 
experience as a human being that this is the way women do it. And so they've had to question it. And it hasn't been more than 100, 150 years that this has bubbled up to the surface and become networked. And really, the birth of trans goes back to the the women who were saying, no, I will not be a woman the way you say I must. And then gay and lesbian, I will not be a man or a woman the way you say I will. And then that's all the trans people are saying, I will not be fill in the blank the way you say I must. And this is my evidence for the mind as a component of gender, as opposed to simply body-level sex. Really, it's only been body-level sex, but the mind has always said, we've always interpreted it with a misogynistic bent, and that's been the dominant mind view interpretation of the body. Um, that's changed now. I don't know what you asked me. The people who organized your talks and came to them, who so were they? Were they? they were people who were saying, I will not be gendered the way you want me to be gendered. These were the folks that we're still saying, yeah, we're all one. Lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transsexuals, transvestites. We were family. Um, again, as it grew, it, it has become much more narrow focused and so gay men listen to gay men lesbian women listen to lesbian women non-binary people listen to non-binary people and you go all right what the heck and was it mostly in colleges and universities oh Did yeah you, yeah oh yeah that was where people engaged your yep. work collectively the yep. most were there other spaces, non-academic spaces, that where your work, where people spent a lot of time engaging your work? There were drag king conferences that I used to go to a lot. They were terrific. Uh, there was there was a big there was a big Midwest gender conference that happened every year. But that again, that was more academically based. Do you remember what it was called? Nope. Okay. I don't. <laughs> so you spent some years really active in a mostly uh, lesbian BDSM community mm. in the 90s. Yeah. What was that like as a community? Like how did the bubble, how did people relate to each other? And like if people weren't having sex, what were they doing together? Um, how 
were there uh, did you encounter other trans people there at some point I met many trans men this is when let's see the first trans man I met was Jameson Green uh, in San Francisco and Lou Sullivan the word transsexual meant a man who becomes a woman. And so the idea that someone assigned female at birth could be all of a sudden a man was not a common idea. That grew over the 80s into the 90s and burst into the lesbian scene. In the lesbian, actually it was Dyke, it really wasn't called lesbian, we called yeah. ourselves Dykes. Uh, the Dyke SM community was pretty much strictly butch and femme. You were butch or you were femme. And at one point in the mid-90s, the idea of F to N, female to male, took off. And it was in that community called Butch Flight. And Femmes would have meetings of, we're losing all our butches, where are they going? damn you, transgender, there's, we're losing all our butches. Again, there was, in the 90s, there was no middle ground. If you were trans, you were going to be a man or a woman. There wasn't the option of being neither or both way there is today. Um, so you had, what did we do? Uh, we had barbecues, you know. We, we'd go to movies, we'd have potluck dinners, um, play parties, was not the big part of our lives. That was maybe once a month. They were expensive to put on and took a lot of work. Um, so I, I moved from Philly to New York uh, at one point, and one of my motivations was for moving was that I was... Uh, couldn't access the dyke play parties in philly and i could in new york yeah, and i started going to submit in maybe late 2003 uh and then moved to new york the following year and um and so encountering a sort of trans women inclusive although there weren't actually that many trans women around uh kink scene in new york was a big contrast to philadelphia for me yeah 
So you were in this community in San Francisco as where there were growing numbers of trans men, um, but no other trans women? Not that I knew. Yeah. What was it? There was, all right. The, yeah. There was uh, Power Surge was the every two year huge Dyke SM event. And... There was a. There was always the question, from. What do we do with Kate Bornstein? Yeah. And they came up with a dick in a drawer, rule. You could come to the event if you had a dick, no problem, as long as you take out your dick, put it in a drawer, and slam the drawer. So it was their way of saying post-op. Trans women were welcome. Pre-op trans women were not welcome. I think that there was one other trans woman that I knew who was out in those days. But really, no. No. Samoa in San Francisco, um, Patrick Califia back when he was a dyke um, broke off from the lesbian SM community to found Samoa which welcomed anybody who identified as a woman and there were pre-op and non-op trans women there but in San Francisco, I was too much into writing and theater. I didn't get to spend much time uh, in the SM community there as I did in Seattle. Seattle's where I really dove into it. When were you living in Seattle? 94, 5, and 6. And I was a full-time slave for the first year. And what brought you back to New York? Theater. I, I, I wanted to give it another go. And that was like 96, 97. And really, it's only been the past couple of years that, that theatrical doors have opened to me. Um, there are now trans playwright groups, trans theater groups. Uh, people are writing plays with trans characters in them, musicals with trans characters in them. Uh, people are using trans folk in commercials openly. Uh, I've got, since in the last year and a half, I was cast in a Broadway show, Straight White Men by Young Jean Lee, and Second Stage Theater, 
and I got a commercial, a Sephora commercial. Um, I've been working on plays with Shakina Nafak. Uh, she's got a show coming up that won't be having its world premiere this summer. To the point where I've been able to put actor before author when they ask me what I do. And it's taken two decades to get to this point, but I'm finally back to theater. How does that feel? It feels home. It feels home. Theater people really are beyond accepting their welcoming of folks who are otherwise considered weird. So you've been in New York for a minute now. You've been living here continuously for... 20 years. 20 years? Yeah. How has it treated you? It's a hard city to live in. It's a very hard city to live in. Um, I was coming from Seattle and Seattle SM community, SM Dyke community, where I was not high femme, but I'm in that direction. And pretty much outlandishly dressed, and that was all right in Seattle. Seattle was a, a city of weird people um, back then, especially on Capitol Hill. Um, in New York, not so much. In New York, you stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, and I realized well, I'm going to have to pass if I want to be safe. So that was, that was very different from any other place, San Francisco or, or here, or I mean, San Francisco or Seattle. So I've toned down my femme expression, but that's also a factor of age. You know, yeah. given that space-time is a factor of gender, I now get to be a little old lady. Um, I'm not exactly invisible. I'm still kind of flashy dresser, so I'm... I'm a stylish, even cute little old lady on the street. You mentioned before we started that you had um, that you've had your a chance to tell your story many times. Um, uh, why did you decide to do this interview to contribute your story to this archive? Because you asked. 
really, I, I didn't want to say no to you. Uh, I don't know that I have all that much new to say or different to say. I honestly don't. I don't believe that now. I, if, if, whoever's listening to this now, if you've made it this far, well, good for you. Um, thank you for your kind attention. But... I know I've got a loud voice in the trans world. My voice goes places uh, from my writing and from public appearances. But that's not how I live my life. I live my life really quite quietly. I love my cat. Um, Tell cats. us about your cats. <laughs> Currently, my familiar is named Sausage. She's a, a runt of a forest cat. She's delightful. Was there anything else that you hoped to share today or want to talk about? do you hope uh, gender is going? In the same way that I've been able to break myself of black and white thinking by breaking myself of the gender binary obedience to the gender binary. I would hope the culture would move in that direction. Because so many of our problems boil down to us versus them. Um, and it's not just gender, it's race, it's class, it's religion, it's looks, it's all of these areas of cultural regulation masquerade as some sort of binary. And it looks like the binary that could break first would be gender. Um, race even masquerades as a binary. There's white people and people of color. Uh, and we know it's not a binary, but we act like it is. Um, now, with the number of people 
claiming non-binary and the number of people, just trans, even trans men and trans women, because part of the matrix that is a binary says there's no, no going back and forth. No binary. You can't change in any binary. Not race, not religion, not class. You're just not allowed to. And the presence of trans in all of its glory is breaking one fuck of a binary. And that's going to open the door to polyamory. That's going to open the door to a whole lot of behavior that people who rely on rules and regulations are not going to like it's, uh, and don't like. But I think it's happening. I think it's inevitable. What would the world look like on the other side of binaries? More like a playground. There'd be room for exploration and growth. Your growth wouldn't be necessarily taking territory away from someone else. Right now, and ever since the women's movement started, any gains by women were seen as thievery from what men had. And that's that's a phenomenon of a binary. You're given half of this pie or your, your section of the pie. And if you want more, you're taking it away from somebody else. Um, I think that concept will eventually disappear. There's an actual word, it's a pollen, it's called pollinary, P-O-L-Y-N-A-R-Y, which is a, any phenomenon made up of three or more parts. And gender as a pollinary allows for compromise, cooperation, coalition, none of which is possible in a binary. You can't compromise in a binary. At best, you can have a truce or a standoff. And, and at best, it's a struggle, but mostly it's warfare. And that's what's happened to American politics now. It's, it's sippling into a real terrible binary. And the nature of our government supports it. In closing, do you want to introduce yourself again? This has been Kate Bornstein. Um, thank you for the opportunity to share my story. Thank you, Kate.